0: Well, the verse for our generosity moment today comes from 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Uh, and in this passage, uh, we see a, kind of a, an allusion to a supply chain system of God's grace and strength. 2 Corinthians 9:10 and 11. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God." So, we see this simplified version of God's supply chain here first. God ultimately supplies for our needs. as he does for the farmer, the sower, for his daily, and for our daily bread. Second, God increases the store of seed, including the enlarging of our witness of righteousness, which is what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives. Third, because of truths one and two, we are invited and called to trust him so we can generously give. And number four, in this case, the Apostle Paul and his co-workers saw that generosity surplus resulted and others thanking God that generosity surplus in today's world also results in countless people who are thanking God. It seems that one of the supply chains of kingdom advancement is generosity. Followers of Jesus are invited and not coerced to join in what he wants to do and is doing. Let me be clear. God does not need our finances or our gifts in order to accomplish his work. He has everything he needs. In fact, he provides it to us. And so it's actually a work of grace. I was just reading a book about this this week, that God provides what we need so that we can be part of the process of him blessing other people. And when we do that freely and graciously and generously, God works in us to bless us as well, to see how richly his grace impacts us. And then to see him working the things he gave us to bless and reach other people. So thank you for giving generously of your finances, of your time, of your uh, generous use of words of encouragement to each other and building each other up. Um, I am often blessed and impressed and inspired as I hear stories of how you take care of people in your lives, take care of each other. Um, it's awesome, so thank you. And uh, May you experience the wealth of God's grace overflowing in your life. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, It starts Holy Week for us as we get to kind of remind ourselves and remember uh, what Jesus experienced on this week so many years ago. Our theme for the week is A Lot Can Change in Seven Days. So we get to celebrate today. We had palm branches in the service as well as we remember Jesus entering Jerusalem uh, with people worshiping him and bringing palms. This Wednesday, we will have a little dinner theater called Into the Garden. It Starts at six o'clock in the gym. We'll have a meal and then uh, there will be, so a delicious meal, I should say that. It's going to be great. Um, and uh, followed by dramatic portrayals of those who encountered Our Lord, as he left the Last Supper and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. We will sing, the choir will sing, and we will have communion together. Uh, And I think uh, it will be one of those opportunities at the end of the night that we will thank the Lord uh, for the experience that we had. Uh, Friday is Good Friday, and we have two services that day um, that are kind of characterized by scripture reading and singing interspersed throughout the service. Uh, So those are at 1 o'clock and 6.45. The 1 o'clock one will be broadcast live online and it will be in person and then it will be available on demand. 6.45 will not be broadcast, but we will have childcare at that one. Uh, And so you can pick and choose. Uh, They both follow the same kind of plan, but they're slightly different in experience. Then of course next week is Easter Sunday. And we will have our services at our regular time. So 8.30 traditional, 10.30 contemporary. We'll have the fellowship hall set up for uh, extra seating for overflow space or for just people who want to feel like they have more space uh, and they're not in a crowded room right now. So, um, but just know those will be broadcast as normal as well. And our radio broadcast will be at 11, uh, just like normal. So we invite you to come celebrate with us as we celebrate and experience again uh, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as he conquered death, sin, and Satan. A lot did happen in seven days, from welcome to a Last Supper, to betrayals and denials, to a cross. Sunday came, and that changed everything. As we turn our attention to prayer, uh, just a couple things I want to highlight that are in the bulletin. Um, First, uh, Ruth is here today. Uh, so she was born this week. And so congratulations to Gabe and Mikkel. Um, Josh Militzer also is an, an uncle again. Uh, uh, so not to Ruth, uh, but uh, Pastor Kirk and Julie are away uh, as they're meeting their new granddaughter. Uh, so we want to be praying for them and celebrating with them. Uh, And on the other side of the journey of life, we just want you to know that Mary Grasscamp's dad passed away last week. And uh, we want to continue to be praying for her and her family. Uh, It sounds like they're doing well, uh, but uh, she's blessed by her church family and asked us to make sure that you knew. So uh, let's pray. Father God, we come before you today. And we thank you that you are the giver of everything that we need. That we can trust you for our daily bread, our daily needs, our daily everything. That you give generously. That you give us grace and love and abundance. That we find in you everything we need. Everything we truly hoped for. And so as we worship you today, we pray that you would experience uh blessing from our praises, uh, as we even in our hearts still wave branches of palms to say, Hosanna, you are everything we hoped for. Thank you. As we approach this week, we pray that you administer to us. Uh, For some of us, these are new experiences, new remembrances, and for some of us, we've, we've done this many times, but we pray either way, that you would reveal yourself to us and remind us of who you are and what you've done and draw us close to you and grow our faith. Father God, we thank you for the birth of these babies and we pray that you bless the families and uh, we just pray that you'd grab a hold of these little girls and remind them from this moment forward of how deeply you love them and how treasured they are We pray to you for the Grass Camp family and just pray that you'd minister to them, that you'd bring peace and comfort, that you'd sustain them and walk with them as they grieve. We pray as we prepare for this week that you would continue to give each of us humble and compassionate hearts toward our neighbors. Uh, We pray that you would continue to help us be aware of the things that you're stirring in us as we have opportunities to invite our neighbors, our family members, our our bank tellers, and uh, grocery store checkers, and whoever it is, uh, to invite them to come and learn more about who you are and what you've done through Easter. We also want to lift up our our friends in Chad, uh, who are practicing Ramadan right now. Uh, We pray that in this time of spiritual seeking and prayer and fasting, that you would break through, that you would Declare the gospel over them and invite them to faith that the things that they've heard from your word taught again and again at water wells and wherever and on mats throughout town. That they would echo in their hearts and minds and make truer sense this week. We also want to lift up uh, the school of Mbutibasa. uh They need more teachers. They need more workers. Uh, there are more and more kids coming uh, and learning your word and learning all kinds of important things at the school. And so we just pray that you'd provide for them, that you would call the right people and equip them for this ministry, that you would do great and mighty things. And we pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was a junior in college, I had the opportunity to study in England for a semester. And then afterwards, I had the chance to Travel around Europe. Uh, a couple t- chances to travel during the term as well. But before I came home, uh, I had two weeks to travel in Europe. Uh, many of you know it didn't go very well for me, but <laughs> but I made it and I'm here. Um, but I did have the opportunity to be in Rome for one day. I arrived at about 7:10 in the morning and left at about 7:30 that night. But Rome in 12 hours is awesome and. Uh, I'm sure I saw everything there is to see, and uh, (laughs) but um, it was two days after Christmas, and so you can imagine uh, the Sunday after Christmas, it was a little bit busy. Um, You can imagine all the people who had saved their whole lives to be able to experience Christmas Mass in Rome at the Vatican, at St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, And so, yeah, it was a crazy busy time, but it was also a blessing because two days after Christmas was the last Sunday in December. And the last Sunday of December, which was very important for a college student at the time, entrance admission to the museums was free. And so, uh, uh, so I got to see the Sistine Chapel and all that cool stuff, and it was fantastic. Um, when I went to St. Peter's Basilica, I had toured lots of cathedrals, lots of churches in Europe and England, and... Um, And I went just because, you know, you're supposed to. But when I walked in, seriously, it was the most beautiful cathedral I had been in. And I just walked in and was like, wow, this place really does just proclaim God is awesome. Um, But even before I made it into the basilica, there was this, as I mentioned, lots of people. There was this huge crowd of people in kind of the mall area outside the basilica. And, And then I heard somebody speaking over a loudspeaker. And you know, I had just been on a train all night and got off and I still wasn't totally tracking with everything. And I was like, where is that coming from? And then I noticed that no one else was moving. That everybody was standing still looking in one direction. And I thought, oh, maybe that's where the voice is coming from. Sure enough, it's the Pope. Uh, so <laughs> um so I didn't understand a thing he said, because I don't know if, even if he was speaking Latin or Italian, but uh, I didn't know what he was saying. But it was cool to experience because um, on the last Sunday of the month, the Pope addressed the people. So when you got to go to the museums for free, and there were lots of people, he would talk to you. So that was cool. Um, so it was a very cool experience that what I wasn't expecting. Um, But as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 9, it also reminds me of this truth that the writer to the Hebrews makes clear. And so if you want to open your Bibles, I'm going to talk for a little bit, but uh, Hebrews chapter 9 in the Pew Bibles, it's page 1037. We're going to look at about the first half of the chapter. So the writer to the Hebrews writes this letter to these people who have been Living as Jews, and they remember the richness of their worship. In the first few verses, the writer even gives us kind of this verbal tour of the tabernacle. He says, "Remember all these things and how it was designed, and what was in each room." And but the writer quickly tells us that the point of this whole old covenant system was just to make us, make us anxious for something more. That the whole system that God gave his people for centuries was just to prepare them that there was something better coming. And so in a system, like, it was great that I got to see the Pope, but we don't want a system where we have to wait till the last Sunday of the month to see the really cool guy come and talk to us. We want a system where we can go talk to the Holy One anytime we want to. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews describes for us in Hebrews chapter 9. So starting at verse 1, we're going to read the first 10 verses now and the verses 11 through 14 in just a little bit. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. So, as the writer opens this chapter, as I said, there's this description of the tabernacle, which was a a template for the temple. And it was glorious and beautiful. As you read the descriptions and the specificity of how God ordained that it would be built and constructed, it was beautiful and fascinating, like St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, it wasn't that big or made of stone. But um, it was glorious. And it was built to remind the people that God dwelt and ruled there the way he dwelt and ruled in Eden. But, as beautiful and fascinating as it was, the people weren't even allowed inside. They could worship God in the courtyard But the only ones who actually got to go in the tabernacle to do the work or experience God were the priests. And only the high priest could go once a year into the holiest place. And so we're reminded, and the writer of the Hebrews wants us to understand, that this whole system of worship in the first covenant, this system of animal sacrifices, taught the people to long for more. The, the sacrifices were offered again and again and again in this intricate schedule and routine, this liturgy of worship. They offered certain sacrifices at harvest and others at other times of the year. And once a year, there was this special day of atonement where the high priest entered the most holy place to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. in all those sacrifices, as meaningful as it was every time, they always had to be offered again and again. The whole picture of it was to tell people that the path to God had not yet been fully opened. They couldn't go to the holiest of places. And that their sins, though great because they needed sacrifices to pay for them, were never fully paid. That each sacrifice just reminded them that God had a way, he had a plan, but it had not yet been realized. But in verses 11 through 14, the writer of the Hebrews tries to explain to us what it tells us about Jesus as we look back on this old system and what we understand in the new covenant through Jesus. Starting at verse 11, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The writer of the Hebrews says, God gave us this really precious system but it was built and designed to let us know that it wasn't all we needed. And if we think about all that it taught us, how much greater is the reality we live in now that Jesus has come and accomplished all that we need, all that we hoped for? And so we want to step back and say, what do we experience with Jesus? What does the writer to the Hebrews want us to understand about what we experience with Jesus in contrast to what used to happen. And the first is that we get full access. There are no more barriers. We don't have to wait till the last Sunday of the month, or that special day once a year, to know that our sins are paid for. We get full access. In the time of the tabernacle, only the priests could enter and do their work. And only the high priest with special sacrifices could enter the most holy place once a year. But now, because Jesus has paid his perfect sacrifice, and not the sacrifice of a really special animal, but the sacrifice of his own life, he paid it once for all, and now we get to go to God through him, because of him, by faith in him, any time. We don't have to wait till a special day or on a certain holiday. We don't even have to go to a special place. We get full access to the God of the universe because of Jesus. Second, and I alluded to it already, and I'm going to say it specifically again when we have communion later. We experience full satisfaction for all our sins. By faith in Jesus because he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross and then conquered sin, death, and Satan when he rose from the dead and left the tomb empty. In the first covenant, there was this intricate system of sacrifices that helped the people know how costly their sin was and reminded them that God had a solution that he was gracious and that he loved them and wanted relationship with them. But none of the sacrifices did what God promised he would one day do until Jesus came and laid down his life for us. Once, for all time. And in Jesus, by faith, as we confess our sin, we receive his righteousness. His forgiveness, full satisfaction for all our sin. As Colossians says, the whole code that was written against us was canceled as he nailed it to the cross. And we also experience immediate response at all times and in all places. Jesus came and he offered his sacrifice once in history. But the repercussions of it, the benefits of it, still echo into all places at all time. And the Holy Spirit works through the word of God to grow faith, to draw our attention to it, to convict us of our sin and to see that God loved us so deeply that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and his death was meant for each of us. That God wants to set us free from the burden of our sin. And we don't have to wait for a sp- special time. As much as we love Easter, we get to celebrate the joy and the wonder of Easter every day. We don't have to wait until next year, if we miss it next week, to live in the reality that Jesus died once for all, and he rose from the dead, and he reigns and lives today. Now, we do have the opportunity to be ushered into the throne room of God, the holiest place where God is in heaven at any time through prayer. And it's important that we note that we get immediate response. That does not mean that God suddenly becomes our holy vending machine and that anything we pray at any time, we get whoosh, the candy bar. Um, because he's also sovereign, holy, righteous we submit ourselves to him. We trust him. He knows more than we do, and he will respond at the right time, in the right ways, through the right people, through the right circumstances. We can trust him to provide for us. So we get immediate response. We know that whenever we go, he hears us and we're with him. But that doesn't mean we get everything we ask for right when we ask for it, because he's smarter than we are, and he knows what we actually need. So Jesus died once for all. He paid for our sin with his life. He rose from the dead, and it's all finished. So the next question, I just thought somebody might be asking, and I think it's worth our attention for a little bit. If Jesus died once for all, and everything is taken care of, it's finished, then why do we keep confessing our sin again and again? And there are a few practical and true reasons that we do that. The first is our sin is real. It's costly. Our sin really did cost Jesus his life. That's an indicator of how serious our sin is. And sin isn't just the things that we do that we, you know, it's this cancer inside of us. That desires to be our own God, to rebel against God. It's, it's the thing in us that causes us to rise up in selfishness and pride and hurt the people around us, even the people that we love. I can be trying really hard to do this dad thing really well, and I really want to teach my kids discipline and honor and integrity, and and sometimes I rise to the challenge, and I say, "They, I just need to crack the whip and they just need to know this. And then, lo and behold, I twisted it. Made it about me and not actually about the discipline. It's good to discipline my kids, but a lot of times, those times that I think, I'm going to take a stand, a lot of times it's more about me trying to prove I'm doing the right thing. And I end up hurting them in the process and it's not very pretty. Lots of tears. It's bad. (laughs) But that's just one example that's pretty comfortable of how our sin affects people. The Bible tells us that our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That even the best version of us, our best moments, are still tainted by sin. And all of those moments, that very attitude and nature inside us is what led Jesus to the cross to pay for our sin. We confess it because it 's real, it matters. God tells us in Romans chapter one that he 's revealed the truth of who he is and his good and right and perfect will, even through the beauty of creation, so that no one is without excuse and in first John one eight it says If we claim to have no sin, we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're just crazy people. Sin is in each of us and it's a serious problem but it's a problem that God has solved for us. So we confess because our sin matters. We also confess because withholds cause distance and doubts. So what are withholds? Uh, On Friday afternoon, after the bulletin was all printed, Drew, our director of communications, came into my office kind of sheepishly and was like, so is there a typo here? Like, withholds? Like a, a noun? Like, I don't think I've ever heard it that way before. But I didn't create it. Uh, some marriage gurus, uh, doctors, Parrot uh, talked about it at a marriage conference that my wife and I went to our first year of marriage. Uh, And it's just kind of stuck with me. And we didn't use the illustration that they gave us. um, Because they actually said to have a clear fishbowl and then write notes when you have a withhold. Something that's just kind of gnawing at you that you need to talk with your spouse about and you just drop it in the bowl. And then the goal is to keep the bowl as empty as possible. So when you see stuff start to pile up, you know it's time to call a family meeting. Um, And so just this week, Chris asked me, do you have any withholds? Because she was just nervous about this pattern of behavior that she has, that she knows could irritate me. Um. (laughs) She, I have plenty more, so let's just be clear. But, so you know on your kitchen faucet, sometimes there's a button that lets you switch to a high-powered spray. But lots of times it's just that constant stream. Well, on some faucets that once you shut it off, it defaults to the constant stream. But on ours, it just locks wherever you left it. And so, and Chris loves to be efficient when she's using the faucet. And so she loves that high-powered spray. And so she shuts it off and she walks away. Her job is done. But then when the next person comes, it goes and sprays all of us from reflecting out of the sink. And it could be very entertaining, but she doesn't really feel good about it. And she knows uh, that it doesn't always make us happy. But it's one of those things that we have had conversations about, and I've learned to have peace about, because she doesn't need to cater to every win I have. And so if it sprays me, it's all part of the fun. But it was important for her to ask because she was nervous about it. Do I have any withholds? Are there things creating distance and doubt in our marriage that, she's unco- that would cause her to feel uncomfortable or cause me to just kind of be frustrated? Well, that ex- We have that experience with God, too. Because we know that Jesus paid for our sins. We know that God loves us. And we know that he sees everything that we've done. All our mistakes, even more than we're aware of. And so why do we confess? Because if we don't, those things build up in our minds. They don't build up in God's mind. Like he knows them all, but he knows that Jesus paid for them. And as we trust Jesus, they're all forgiven. But for us, it starts to create dissonance and doubt in our relationship with God. We start to feel like we need to hide more and more as we have all those things kind of building up. And then they start to change from just things that we know about to things that cause doubt. Like, but does, did God really mean that he would forgive me for all those things that I'm aware of? Or for that one really bad thing? And so we confess so that we can hear him. So first of all, confession is pretty simple. At its base, it's just agreeing with God that he is good, right, just, perfect, and we are not. And so we admit that he's right, and we did it wrong, and we need him. And when we do that, his grace washes over us. And we experience again how true it is that Jesus died once for all and paid for everything that we need. And it grows our confidence, just like that conversation And the ability to work through those withholds in our marriage grows our love and deepens us. It makes us feel more secure that we know we can talk about hard things and work through it. Not perfectly, but God does it perfectly. So just, anyway, I won't. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. It's a beautiful picture of this experience between us and God. It says, when I was silent about my sin, when I withheld confession, I just... Tried to hide. It just was this weight on me. It felt like when you open the door on a really humid day and you walked outside and instantly all your energy just drained out of you. It was just a weight. It was so hard. But then I decided I would confess to the Lord. And I confessed the guilt, the iniquity of my sin. And God declared His forgiveness and the weight was lifted and i felt free again it's a beautiful picture i invite you to read it it's a helpful picture for me in helping sustain that cycle of confession why do we confess because satan twists guilt into shame you see the law of the lord tells us what's true about his character and how perfect and holy and righteous he is it tells us about his expectations it tells us about who he is. And when we compare ourselves to that standard, we always fall short. That's guilt. We are guilty of sin, and we need a Savior who will pay for our sin and set us free. But what Satan does is he takes that truth that says, you're guilty. And he tries to hide us from the truth that God says, I love you so much that while you are still sinners, Christ died for you. And he takes the truth of our guilt and twists it and says, how could God love someone like you? Someone who does all those things. And he twists the truth of our guilt into something that is supposed to be our identity. He twists us into thinking that it's real. That maybe our sin is something that God could never pay for that Jesus couldn't cover, or that he wouldn't want to. But when we confess our sin to God, the one who knows what is actually true, right, good, and perfect, and he knows everything about what's wrong and evil too, and he knows how to separate those two correctly, when we go and confess our sin to the Lord, by faith in Jesus, He sets us free and washes his forgiveness over us. And there's no place for shame because our identity is rooted in the fact that we are children of God. That Jesus died for and set us free. Our sin is real and we are guilty. But it's not who we are. It's not who God wants us to be. And it's not who Jesus leaves us as. So this passage in Hebrews chapter 9 reminds us that, this, that God built a system. The first covenant was to prepare us for this new covenant that would be fully satisfied in Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. In great contrast to what came before. So many sacrifices all the time. But they were inefe- inefficient, ineffective, insufficient. They couldn't do for us what God wanted to do for us. And so Jesus came. And once for all, it's paid. But now we celebrate it. We recognize it. We remember it and experience it again and again. Every time we confess, we get to hear the truth that Jesus' one and only sacrifice is enough and it washes over us. And it's enough to make us clean. It's evidence that God loves us at all times, at all places, through all things. And that he can cover every sin, every blemish, every failure. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. But we celebrate it and experience it again and again and again. Because it's for us. And it brings us to Him. Let's pray. Father God, you are mighty and awesome. You are holy and righteous. We don't know anyone like you. We've never experienced, actually, in perfection, the wonder of being. Like, how wonderful it is to be with you fully. To see how good and perfect you truly are. And to not be afraid. But that's what you're teaching us as we experience Jesus, as we come to you in faith. Pray that you wash us clean. In Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and you left heaven and glory behind in order to experience brokenness with us and for us. We thank you for setting us free, that you died on the cross once for all, once forever. You're enough for each of us. So we pray that you would draw us close to you. That you would captivate us in your presence. That you would help us to see you and recognize how true this is. That the God of the universe knows our names. Knows everything we've done. Knows every brokenness and failure and regret. And made a way to make us whole. Set us free, in Jesus' name, amen.